Some more refreshing views with Mark Ricci on episode 361 of the Actual Astronomy Podcast. I'm Chris, and joining me is Shane. We're amateur astronomers who love looking up at the night sky, and this podcast is for everybody who likes going out under the stars. So, Mark, I, I lifted your intro. I don't know that I've ever done a proper intro for you before, but uh, maybe I'll read one now if that's okay. Yeah, far away. All right. Mark Radici is an amateur astronomer and photographer based near Salisbury in England, which is very close to Stonehenge. He says a stone's throw from Stonehenge. He has a passion for observing the night sky and started observing using a borrowed pair of binoculars when Comet Hayek attack crossed the sky back in 1996. And he now enjoys his own equipment using a garden observatory. Mark has been published several times in Astronomy Now magazine, which is one of the uh, leading astronomy magazines in the UK and is short and was shortlisted for a 2021 uh, astrophotography uh, of the year, Astro astrophotographer of the year competition, I suppose it should be. Astronomical interests include high resolution lunar and planetary imaging, deep sky sketching, binocular observing, all with a cup of tea, and he writes occasionally for Astronomy Now, enjoys visiting dark skies and star parties in the UK, and he has a blog at refreshingviews.com, as well as the Refreshing Views YouTube channel. Thanks for joining us again, Mark. How are you doing? Nice to hear from you. How's the, how's the weather in sunny Canada? Mm, it's not sunny. <laughs> <laughs> Today, anyway. <laughs> See if I can show you. I'm not sure if this will come through, but... It's it's People fairly laugh at us in, in the UK. They say, "How on earth do you guys do any astronomy in the UK?" And and then I say, "Well, I've got these two friends who live out in Saskatchewan. And, uh, <laughs> you get forest fires in the summer. You get black fly, then the mosquitoes, and you get a really nice two or three weeks in in the fall, in the autumn, and then it's minus forty. <laughs> and then you can't, then you have... So yes, yeah, so observing in the UK, although we have a wet." you know, maritime climate is, is doesn't seem as bad as being in the, the middle of Canada. <laughs> yeah, we, we sometimes struggle with the right conditions here, but when it's good, it's, it's really good usually. So, um, this is, this is my favorite time of the year to observe. Um, temperatures are still warm enough where, you know, I don't have to bundle up. The bugs are usually gone and it gets dark early enough to, uh, not have to stay up so late. So yes. I'm hoping we can get some clear skies for the next couple of months and then uh then it probably gets too cold did you guys see the comet do you see comet nishimura i did not no i had a look i did a sketch yeah <laughs> it was brutally hard it was like one of the hardest things i've ever seen <laughs> <laughs> did you did you get a ch uh, chance I to look at it did and the weather didn't coincide and when it was clear i was away with work but uh, what i did find fascinating about this was that uh, mr nishimura in japan was an amateur astronomer yeah and he beat the professionals he beat those big sky surveys and actually discovered his second comet so people who say amateurs can't discover comments that uh, you know the professionals are taking over i think he's found a way by photographing towards the sun that bit before sunrise and sunset and you know he's, he's putting out these comments that the professional surveys haven't picked up yeah yeah there's there's always a few holes like i've observed up near the pan stars telescope in hawaii and you know it, it opens up but you know, of course, they too can get clouded out for a few weeks or other other events can take place. And then um, as well, they have trouble pointing really low on the horizon in certain directions. Like as, like if you look at pan stars, it's at 21 degrees north latitude. It's going to have trouble sort of uh, looking right to the north northwest. It, you know, it's going to do a, a decent job of covering the sky. But like our area of the northwest here which is visible starting next week above the horizon. Um, you know, there's probably about five or 10 degrees of horizon there or more that, uh, that like the pan stars telescope can't cover. Yeah. Uh, my hat's off to him. I thought that was brilliant. I thought that's fantastic that an amateur went out and discovered a comet. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty back cool. In the day, they, they were all amateur discoveries, weren't they? But that's, that's not been the case for a few years now. Yeah. Yeah, maybe we're getting, maybe we'll get more comets discovered though, yeah. that we can see. Yeah, fantastic. So I'm speaking to you from my shed. I'm in, I'm in the wardroom of my observatory. And uh, as you said, you know, that picture that was in the astrophotography of the year, you can just see over my left shoulder. That's Mare Oriental. That's on the, technically, it's on the far side of the moon. 
Mm. And then the liberation brought it back in. But this is very much my happy place, my shared, my uh, my observatory. This is where I come to, you know, get out under the stars. And Chris, how's your observatory build coming along? If I if I get interrupted here, it's because my builder showed up. Uh, I'm still, yeah, it's going very slow right now. Um, we have a few things left to do. That the main bits that need to be done before we can put the scope in are we need the the soffit sealed in because right now it's just open sort of up underneath into the observatory so anything can come flying in there i was sitting there yesterday watching uh wasps come zipping in and out quite freely um and then we also need to figure out the the exact way we're going to mount the uh pier adapter and and the mount to the the pier inside so uh yeah there's there's a few uh there's a few logistical things with those that uh, that the builder is a little bit hung up on. So anyway, ho- hopefully by next year it'll be running. I don't know. It seems, <laughs> like, yeah, this last ten percent is taking ten times longer than the first ninety percent. Your Purito, i.e., Purito analysis of your observatory build. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, I must admit it's the best upgrade. I've ever done. So if I'm tired after work, if I've got a commute to work early in the morning, the ability to just literally put your coat on, grab your keys, be outside, be observing, everything's set up, power's there, you're already lined up. It is simply wonderful. You won't regret it in the slightest. Well, yeah. And if anybody gets gets the feeling that Mark is trying to sell me on this, it's because he's the one who who really, I'd always thought of an observatory, but he put me over the line and is is very much to blame for the past three months of misery, which I have endured. <laughs> it's an investment, as we say. It's an <laughs> oh yeah, it's it's been yeah, it's been a trip. Um, but like the the, I feel like the difficult stuff is completed, uh, which is getting getting the roof to roll. Although I did learn something um, looking at yours because you you were kind enough to send me some pictures and as well your link and i think we had a at least a couple phone calls or zoom calls on it uh you know outside of the podcast uh which is that your roof has like a steel or or yeah it has a steel like yeah frame yeah and and so this this has come up quite a bit in our construction because you know in a way like we kind of loosely based how my roof is designed on yours my roof definitely doesn't slide as well as yours, it slides okay. Like it's like it's okay, it's fine. Um, but like in in talking to my builder, like I was I was trying to get it sl- to slide as nicely as yours. And there's two or three other people online that uh, that have a similar roof to yours. And in looking at those, and then talking to my builder, realized that even though you put a big steel like sort of cage or or like frame inside. And that adds a lot of weight. The uh, squareness of it uh, overcomes the weight, which oh, definitely. is which is a learning experience for me. I'm not a builder. I know you know this. This probably isn't news to a lot of our listeners. So, because the thing that I always had in my mind was you should make the roof as light as possible, and that's true to a certain point. I think you almost have to make it crazy light. And my roof is only three hundred and a quarter pounds right now. It's not even four hundred pounds. And it's sort of right on the limit of that really low weight side of things. You really want to keep the weight of the roof exceptionally low or make it out of steel. And then it like you can make it as heavy as you want as long as it stays perfectly square. Because if it's perfectly square like yours is, it doesn't matter if it can weigh like I think yours weighs 900 pounds or something you said. Something heavy. Yeah, you can yeah, lift it. Yeah, yeah. Mine though, like, you know, had a couple of the neighbors over and they kind of were checking something and they just lifted it off. You know, it's like I said, it's around 300 pounds. So two guys can kind of lift that off. It might not even be 300 pounds, but if you're building an observatory, you almost want to go ultra, ultra light or make it out of steel. That's I I learned that. Yeah. And as well, well, get your credit card out and and buy a dome. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I, I don't think I could live with a dome myself. Because it, I originally I thought maybe I'd get one of these small domes or see if I could find a used dome because the odd time you can find a used dome somewhere, but I I don't like the idea of losing the sky. I like to open it up and see yes. the whole 
the whole sky, you know. What are your thoughts on the dome versus roll-off? Well, that, that's, that's why I went for a roll-off show, because I like looking at there if I'm photographing Jupiter or looking up at the stars as you get to see it. But, of course, if you're in a dome, you've only got that narrow slit above your head. You know, I've yeah. seen meteors, satellites going past. You see the space station. You, know, you see the clouds coming in. You know, all <laughs> yeah. the usual sort of stuff. But, of course, if you're in your dome, you sit there and go, why is this kit not working? Why can't I see anything? Why is nothing coming into the screen or into the eyepiece? And then you look out and so you go, ah, it's clouded over. Yeah. And you're sort of lost in your little bubble. And yeah. I, do, I enjoy doing the planetary, the high-resolution lunar and planetary imaging. And, of course, you want to have your air as still as you possibly can. You don't want any interference. And, of course, if you're in a dome... All the warm air that's heated up in the day when the observatory has been in the sun is now going up through the slits, which, yeah. of course, means your telescope is then looking through a through a heat haze. Yeah, yeah, there's there's that. And I think also, like, they are, they can be, in, in proper sizes, they can be pretty expensive. Yeah. So. Are you going to get an observatory, Shane? Is that something on the to-do list? Not not even remotely on the list. <laughs> Been there, done that. I would probably be the counterbalance to this conversation, I guess, about owning an observatory. Um, you know, when I had mine, um, you know, it just wasn't the right use case. Like I had it in my backyard and having a fixed location for a telescope was detrimental in a way. It actually limited my observing um, and I didn't realize that at the time when I put it up and, you know, put the telescope in there. But what, uh, what I found because of the buildings and the trees around me, um, I would often not be able to see some objects that if I could just move my telescope 10 yards, one direction, I would then be able to see around some of these obstructions and, uh, and would be able to see the object that I wanted. So, um, you know, I had the observatory, I think for probably five, six, maybe seven years and towards like the last two or three years, I never went in it, uh, a just slow evolution of taking the telescope and moving it around the yard to do all of my observing. Now, a couple caveats that people should be aware of is, you know, I wasn't using any kind of tracking mount, so, you know, uh, it's easy to move. I don't have to re realign or do anything like that. And the largest telescope that I've had in there was a 120 millimeter refractor. So again, it's pretty easy to lift this thing up and move it around. Um, I think if I was to ever have an observatory again, um, one, it would have to be a different location where I'm not needing to move a telescope to see objects. Uh, it would need to be a large telescope, like very, you know, to, to the point where I don't want to move it around. So I just leave it in the observatory and, or have a tracking mount that, you know, requires alignment that I don't want to have to do every time. Um, but because I didn't take any of those boxes before, it just became a, a you know, a structure I did not use. And, it, you know, in fact, it became too much work to even just maintain it, uh, because I wasn't using it. There's no value proposition there for me. So, so I sold my, uh, my observatory, which was a sky shed pod, one of those fabricated plastic domes and, uh, don't regret it at all. One thing too, maybe I'll just chime in a little bit about the dome, uh, concept, you know, like you guys were saying, you prefer the roll off because you can see the whole sky, which makes a ton of sense. Um, one thing I did appreciate the dome for, especially here in this province where, where Chris and I live, there's often wind. <laughs> and the nice thing with the dome is I would always be able to position it as the windbreak, uh, for me in the observatory and then observe the opposing sky. And, uh, that was quite handy many, many times. Uh, you know, if there was a, I guess a value proposition for my observatory, that would have been it. There is some nights where it would have been too windy to just set up in the backyard and observe, but the observatory with, with the dome was able to provide more than enough shelter to have a nice session. So anyway, that's my little diatribe on mm. observatories and oh, interesting. Where I'm at. yeah, yeah. Mm. I kind of, I, I sort of broke the, my brain trying to trying to sort out all the little aspects of different things that I wanted, and and I think maybe that's part of it with my builder is he's so hesitant now to do things because of all the little tweaks. So we made the the roll off roof in such a way that I can do a partial roll off in wind and lock it down and still see the ecliptic, but I'm actually still like sheltered by the observatory. So. 
the way the way it is, and we put this drop down wall. Um, the way it's set up is you can observe the whole ecliptic, and then you're almost still inside the observatory with this slit open. So we, I tried to kind of mimic that aspect of the uh, of the skyshed pod, except then what I can do very easily is just undo those two half um, turnbuckles, fully roll it off, and it goes back about uh, two and a half feet beyond the back wall, and then I can drop down the front wall. So I can see about I can see about eighty five percent of the sky at any at any given time, or I can see about. 20% of the sky if I, if I put it in that kind of uh, wind uh, lockdown position. Mm. Oh, interesting. But, I love to, I love talking about this sort of thing because of course there's no right or wrong way. Okay. <laughs> Excuse me. You know, you can do it any which way you do you like. Uh, yeah. So I'm, I'm a bit disappointed actually, because my shed was built by uh, a company based in the UK and uh, the UK Astronomy Forum is Stargazers Lounge. Do you know that yep. one? Oh, yeah. So if you go onto Stargazers Lounge and if you search up UK Home Observatory, um, you know, that the, the poor business has, I don't know, gone defunct or something like that. I'll have to be careful what I say, but, you know, there's people calling out, uh, you know, sort of law enforcement and bailiffs oh. because people have paid deposits and haven't had them turn up. So mm-hmm. they do. I don't want to say anything in case I get myself into trouble, but luckily I've got my observatory built, can't fault it, but it seems that others haven't been so fortunate. So, yeah. Yeah, because mine was number, I think my invoice was number 84. Yeah. So he was saying when he built it, you know, we've practiced on 83 before we've got <laughs> to yours. So all the little problems and, you know, the steel structure and all that, you know, they sort of ironed out before they come and come and build here. But, yeah, I, I, I think it's wonderful, you know, that you say, if I'm getting up early to go to work, I can literally pop out, Yeah, look at the moon, look at Jupiter. You know, go in, get commute to work. If I'm tired after work, if there's a brief hour between storm clouds, you know. And you get to about two or three in the morning, and I think, oh, I really am tired. I'm going to go in. You just <laughs> roll the roof back, turn the power off, put the dust covers on. You leave all your notes out, leave all your charts out, just yeah. back and sort it out in the morning. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that is one aspect I do miss, Mark. Um, you know, I, I made it sound like probably a little too negative for my experience, but that aspect is wonderful. Um, and sometimes, I, you know, you could see the clouds coming. And it was like, well, I'm only going to get 30 minutes if I want to observe. Um, and and because I had everything, you know, all I had to do was lift the roof. I would observe for 30 minutes until the clouds came where, you know, now if the clouds are coming, I eh, probably won't yeah. set up. Yeah. <laughs> my longest partner, I was like, where the hell did I leave my keys? I need to make a cup of tea. I can't, you yeah, know, where's my coat? I've, I've left it somewhere. It's like <laughs> the longest part of setting up. Yeah. I spent the last day. Uh, few months well actually i've learned this from my friend lawrence i visited lawrence's observatory it's called the great bear observatory which is in our next next village uh, and he had a sky he has a sky shed pod as well oh uh, so he, he has one of those that was imported he bought it second hand uh, in the uk and he was looking to get an observatory for, for for ages and he was you know on the second hands and on the forums and stuff and he found one that was for sale, but it was up in Newcastle, which is a town up in the north of England. We're down in the south of England. So it's about a five or six hour drive. So he hired a van. He and his wife drove up there. They picked up the observatory, loaded it, all the parts into the back of the van. They drove for six hours back home, you know, unloaded the van, collapsed it a heap. And then the next week, there was one for sale in the next town, you know, sort of 15 minutes away. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> oh, for goodness sake. <laughs> anyway, when I was around it here, so we went up to, uh, um, I've seen it as well, we went up to the Kelling Heath, which is our big UK yeah. party. So that's next month in October. And uh, we were both uh, observing. We went for the Vale Nebula. So I was looking at it through my uh, refractor, through my Mercury 90s, at the Bino view, and I was looking at this Mercury 93, you know, the Vale Nebula, the supernova remnant. And of course, I'm maintaining my night vision. I've gone round the back of the, the, the um, caravan, you know, the sort of camper van. And avoiding all the stray lights and stuff, I could just make out this, you know, that, that ghostly glow of the veil and nobody, and I'm sketching it. And he's on the other side, uh, live stacking it. So instead of using a camera to take, you know, lots of pictures to then process and then turn into a final image, he leaves it stacking. And every time, 30 seconds, it takes a picture. And the software then stacks it live in front of you. So it's a bit like observing, but really you're using a camera, you're not using a lens. So there's me behind the back, you know, and I've not got any stray lights. I can just make out this sort of glow, that that sort of 
crescent shape of the Feo Nebula. And I wander around to see Lawrence after about 45 minutes. And yeah, how are you getting on? He's got his feet up on the table. He's got a glass of wine. There's about three people <laughs> looking at the view. You've got all the colours and tendrils. So I thought, I've got to give this a go. So I put my camera onto the telescope and you, and you put a piece uh, software called SharpCap and you pay for the, the license. And it's absolutely changed the way I observe. So I've always been a big fan of visual, of sketching, of enjoying the night sky. But I'm very conscious, and I think you mentioned in one of your early podcasts, that all galaxies look the same. They all look like dim, you know, grey smudges. Uh, you know, they all look like uh, sort of small rugby balls in the telescope. And as I work my way through the Herschel 400 and the hundreds of galaxies, particularly in the spring, you know, I've got, I've got a, is it a a D RB in my notebook, which is another dim rugby ball of <laughs> all these galaxies. <laughs> and then you put the live stack on, you put the shell cap software on, and you take a 30-second picture, and you've got a sort of grainy outline of what it is. The second 30-second picture arrives, and, and the software stacks it. So the noise, the signal's now doubled, and the noise is half, so it keeps on improving every time. And within two or three minutes, you've got beautiful views. You know, I've looked at, you know, the with a 90-millimeter refractor, looking at the Messier 101, the Pinwheel Galaxy and Ursa Major, you know, you've got the spiral arms, you've got the H2 regions, we've got this supernova that was discovered in the summer. It's now down at sort of 15th magnitude, you know, and it's a 90 millimeter refractor pulling in a 15th magnitude supernova and the spiral arms. I mean, I can see the Messier 101 in my refractor, it's that sort of ghostly glow and, you know, hints at some sort of mottling. But you put the camera on, put the light stack on, I'm like, oh my goodness, it blows, blows my socks off. You know, what we can absolutely see is that, I'm joking, it's the, it's the best eyepiece I've ever bought. <laughs> so, Mark, what, what camera? So you're talking about live stacking. You sent us some notes on this, um, you know, seeing Lawrence uh, do some live stacking uh, when you were observing the veil. What camera are you using? Is, is it like a special live stacking camera or is it? So the software's doing the work. So you buy an astronomy camera, you know, one of the, well, there's various different types, isn't there? There's the ZWOs and the player ones and, and those sort of cameras. So as opposed to a DSLR, so I control in the camera, you know, buying a special astronomy camera uh, and you put it on so you can control the exposure, the gain, the settings, et cetera, from the software, from SharpCap. And then it's putting it together. It's live stacking it on the screen. And I put a second monitor in as well into the shed, into the observatory. So I can have a big picture as well. And then the settings on one screen. So I then, uh, so I'm using a player one camera, which is one of the new entrants to the market. So they're, uh, I think they're, well, probably they're all Chinese manufactured nowadays, but it's uh, using the 533 chip. And that's, that's, it's just simply wonderful. So I then put the camera on the big Celestron C11 or my bigger scope. Uh, put the F6 focal reducer on as well. And so, for example, we've got these sort of fainter uh, autumn galaxies now, if you look away from the plane of the Milky Way. Uh, so being able to resolve, you know, things like Stefan's Quintet and actually being able to see the tidal trails as these yeah. galaxies are interacting within several minutes. And I sit there, I've got the radio on in the background I've got my cup of tea in my hand and yeah, just being able to see these wonderful details. It's simply absolutely stunning. So thoroughly recommended it. And I say it's all Lawrence's fault from having shown me this at, uh, at the Killing Heath Star Party. How, how much uh, additional cost, like for a camera and for the license and anything else that you need, what, what are you looking at to get going? Is it like $500 or $5,000? Well, assuming you've already got the telescope in the mount, so yep. you need a tracking mount. Otherwise, yep. the object will slowly wander out of the field of view. Okay. Assuming you've got a telescope and assuming you've already got a mount that tracks, a uh, few hundred pounds, few hundred dollars to get a reasonable entry-level camera. Okay. And I hope Robin Glover, who Dr. Robin Glover is the man who makes SharpCap, and I really hope he doesn't listen to this because he charges £12 sterling. So that's, what's that, $20 or so, 20-something dollars Canadian. Yep. Uh, and I think that's an absolute bargain for the capability that cool. it offers. So fingers crossed he's not listening and then puts his prices up. <laughs> I'm just looking yeah, at so, Yeah, so there's another your... one there, isn't it? So yeah, tell us uh, about uh, this one. Yeah, tell us about so this one. Yeah. So the Ring Nebula, again, that's a, so this is a planetary nebula. So you've got a star about the same size of as our sun. And the star's got to the end of its life. And the, it's puffed out 
its outer atmosphere out into deep space and it's left behind the core, the core of the star that's become a white dwarf. Uh, and it's fascinating because this is one solar mass or nearest down at one solar mass and 0.6 of that solar mass is in that stellar core, but it's the size of the Earth in terms of, so you can just imagine how densely packed together that is, you know, you've taken something the size of the sun and compressed it down to the size of the Earth. So you can actually, like sort of, I just want to hop in because you can actually see, it looks like you can see the central star here yes, in M57. That's, right. that's yeah, so that, And this so is with the 90 millimeter? That's with the 90 millimeter. So the central star is 15th, 16th magnitude, isn't it? Something, something yeah, like that. Something like and that. And there it is. It's, it's picked up at the camera. You can just about see there, although that image looks a bit compressed when I emailed it to you. Uh, some of the sort of subtle details, some of the subtle bands in, 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 the, in the ring nebula. So it is, it's turned by 90 millimeter refractor or the, the 11 inch uh, C11, the 11 inch Celestron. And it's turned it into, you know, a, an observatory class, you know, a, a proper big Dobsonian to be able to see spiral arms, the central star in M11, the tidal tails within uh, the, uh, you know, the Stefan's Quintet. It's completely changed every, it's a bit like starting again. You know, when you had a telescope, your first telescope, your pair of binoculars, and you went outside and you looked at the moon for the first time, and you looked at Saturn, and you looked at the ring nebula, and it was all exciting because it was all new. I'm doing this uh, again. <laughs> that came round again, but using the power of the camera. So I still get to observe. So I spent, I don't know, 15, 20 minutes thereabouts, uh, you know, letting the camera do its work, letting this image build up, getting that stacking improve. And then I go on to the next one. So the other night, for example, we had a very clear night a few nights ago, and there's four or five, yes, five galaxies, five Herschel 400 galaxies in Pegasus. Mm -hmm. Now, in my notebook, when I go and find it somewhere up there on the bookcase, I've, I've observed them a, a few years ago. And again, they're, they're visible in the C11, you know, they're, but they're, they're, they're amorphous glows, you know, they hint at some of the spiral arms, you know, whatever. And I'm saying, you put the, put the camera on, and it actually turns them, you know, into barred spirals. You can see some of the mottling, 7331 NGC 7331. You can see the dark dust lane, the uh, the flea galaxies that are alongside it. You know, it just uh, it's just absolutely amazing. It's like having a new telescope a second time around. Hmm. So, Mark, these images that you sent to us, these are not post-processed in any way? These are just kind of no how the... processing. Yeah. Yeah, wow. don't, no darks, no flats. Yeah. Just press the buttons in the software. Uh, you have little sliders so you can adjust the black point and, and the sort of gain you're, you're adding in. But mm -hmm. I just do that just by eye, you know, so I'm not spending the next morning. So some of the guys in our in our club will, you know, spend all night, 10 o'clock till 3 in the morning. Their kit's out there, you know, taking image after image, sub after sub. They then spend the next week processing that, turning mm -hmm. it into one of these beautiful final images i spend too much time at work in front of the computer that's definitely not for me i like being out under the night sky and we talked about having an observatory and rolling the roof off and seeing meteors and listening to the owls and that sort of thing so this is right up my street you've got the the beauty of observing but you're using the power of the camera so it is absolutely wonderful so i see you just scrolled down there so the other thing i've done is uh, had a really good look at m31 so everyone says, you know, the Andromeda galaxy, you know, you need a wide angle uh, telescope to, to catch this huge object, however many degrees, five degrees across, I think it is. So I've had a look at it with the little refractor and then swapped over and put it on the big, on the session C11. And there's a star cloud inside the Andromeda galaxy. I mean, like everything, it was discovered by William Herschel. And he discovered this star-forming region. So a bit like when we look at the Milky Way, you can see, you know, the Sagittarius star cloud or the Scutum star cloud. And it's one of these star clouds, these H2 regions full of stars in the Andromeda galaxy. And I've seen it with the, you know, the 10-inch refractor from our dark sky site. Sorry, 10-inch refractor from our dark sky site. And you can see there's a little amorphous cloud. And then you put the camera on it, you put the, uh, you know, the live stacking on it, and you can actually pick out the stars inside the star cloud of NGC 206. So it's actually resolved the, you know, they're pretty big and bright, these stars. These are the OBE stars. These are, you know, several hundred times the solar mass. But those are individual stars hmm. inside the Andromeda galaxy. And so this is from my second-hand telescope that I've got installed in my garden in southern England, and yet we're resolving stars in another galaxy. 
So, Mark, what's the this is uh, this is neat because NGC two hundred six is one of my favorite targets to try to take a look at. Um, what is the field of view then? Because it's a pretty small field in the eleven inch. What kind of field of view are yeah. you able to get in the ninety millimeter and and the eleven inch? So, if I look at my notes, things I did write it down. So the it's one point three degrees. Oh, that's not bad. The ninety says so one well nearest damn it one and a half degrees. So it's that three full moons. Yep, and then in the refractor, it's point three. Sorry, in the uh, C eleven, it's point three of a degree, so two oh, thirds. Okay. Can you two get a wider of... field of view? Like, if you use a different camera, or is it the software that's keeping yeah? So, it to that so yeah. So, if you had a bigger chip, you would have yeah. you know physically more of that light path in the field of view. But a bigger chip, of course, costs more money. So, it's it's a bit of a trade off. So, I went for a middle of the road camera. You can easily spend a lot, 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 lot more money on the camera than I did. So I went for a middle of the road one. Um, well, that's an interesting one. So you just scroll down a bit further. So there's two satellite galaxies to the Andromeda galaxy. You've got M32 and M110. Mm-hmm. And to me, they've always looked through the eyepiece. You can see them, you know, one's a bright glow and one's a dim glow, you know, mm-hmm. like a bright sort of more dense and the other one sort of more diffuse. And again, that's using the C11. And you look at, I mean, you can see in there, can't you? There's two dust clouds. Yeah. Inside M110. And I didn't know they were there. I yeah, you can see that. It's just... almost like a, there's like a, a large, dark, circular egg-shaped thing. Yeah. And then there's like a big band over here on this side. And yeah. it, it's hard to tell. So are these, I don't know if you can see my, is this pixelation just from my low res here? Probably. I think, yeah, yeah, I think it's yeah, what okay. we're sharing on the Zoom. Okay. Uh, but yeah, it's not a super duper image for the very reason that that's probably 10 minutes of exposure. You know, it's a mm-hmm. 20... 30 seconds so it's not going to be the you know that beautiful 20 hour captured in chile with a remote telescope sort of quality mm-hmm. okay. but for something while you're sipping your cup of tea listening to the radio looking at it on the monitor that's what you can see well, so there's no way i can see that that level of detail with my refractor mm-hmm. you know this oh, you reminds can... me a little bit of um the night vision astronomy that some folks are doing you know with how that really enhances some views of these uh, deep sky objects. Um, you know, this is very similar. It's not quite the live view that you would get with the uh, uh, with the night vision, but you know, it 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 builds this over a short period of time, as you mentioned, Mark, and and gives you some amazing detail that you just cannot see with the eye. Yeah, uh, I just, I mean, you've got you scroll down a bit further. So this is one of my nemesis objects. So as I was working my way through the. Herschel 400, the observing program, the best of the best and brightest of the, there was it two and a half thousand, three thousand objects he discovered. Uh, and this is NGC 891, which is this beautiful sort of edge on spiral galaxy. You know, it's that classic cigar shape. You've got the dark uh, dust lane running right through the center of it. And I'd start off at Beta Andromedae, which is Almac, that beautiful double star at the end of Andromeda. So I get that in the eyepiece and you got the, the, the lovely colours. And then it was a short star hop to Al to, to from Almat to NGC eight nine one. And I couldn't see it. You know, it it was it's that low surface brightness object and I couldn't see it. it was, I don't know. I called it my nemesis object because people were you read on the forums and I and I always take this with a pinch of salt of people who've seen it in you know, their four-inch reflector or their 10 by 50 binoculars or something like that. And I think, here I am with an eight-inch, and I don't think I'm an incompetent observer, although probably at the time I was still learning, uh, and I couldn't find it. And one day, you know, I did manage to, oh, there it is, I could just make it out. It's a ghostly glow. Um, you know, when I've looked through big dobs, when we've gone to the star parties, you can see the dust lane as well. And I say within 10, 10 minutes of the, the camera clicking away, it's resolving features inside the dust lane of NGC 891. So I do feel that I've up because I've now got a 20 inch or a 30 inch telescope uh, in, in my shed by doing this live stacking. My friend, Tim, he, uh, this was his nemesis object as well. And we, we had tried to observe this on so many occasions. And then we went up to uh, what's called the Bruce Peninsula in uh, sort of in Northern, Southern Ontario. I guess that's the best way to put it. And he had an eight-inch telescope, and we finally saw it from from the Bruce, which is like a pretty close to like a Bortle one or a magnitude uh, six and a half, magnitude seven sky. And and we finally saw it after a couple of years of of trying. And then when I moved out here, I found that I could uh, 
easily observe it with my five inch uh, refractor just about on any kind of decent night. I was I was really surprised by just the fact that once you observe it, it, it does become easy. But that first observation uh, for this galaxy, for whatever reason, seem, it seems to be pretty commonly uh, yeah. a, a pretty big challenge. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's that low surface brightness. You can't be looking right at it. Yeah, you don't detect it. You know, you, you it's there, but you can't physically see it and pick it out. And suddenly, you sort of catch sight of it, and that's ah, oh, there it is. The other one I used to struggle with was the veil nebula when I was learning to observe. I, oh, really? I could not find the veil. I used to look for the veil, and again, people are saying, oh, "I saw it in my ten by fifty binoculars." The first time I saw it was in the we. I did a holiday. We did a hiking holiday in the Spanish Pyrenees. Okay. So we were about 6,000 feet. It was really dark, you know, Milky Way sort of casting a shadow, sort of dark. Uh, the glow worms in the hedgerow, the glow beetles, glow bugs, were a serious source of light pollution because you catch <laughs> them out of the corner of your eye. And I remember with my 15 by 50 Canon binoculars, I said, oh, there it is, I could see it. But that was because we were super high, you know, yeah. very dry because it was the Spanish Pyrenees. Uh, so up above a good fraction of the atmosphere, and I could see it. But I can remember coming back to the UK, I cannot see it, and I know I can't. I should be able to see it. And I then found out you're supposed to use a UHC filter or an O3 filter. O3, yeah, works pretty good. Yeah, yeah. and that sort of dims. It only passes the light through from the emission from the nebula itself, so it dims down that sort of background sky glare and improves that sort of signal-to-noise ratio. I was like, ah, oh, there it is. It's as plain as day when you put the filter in, put the uh, UHC or the O3 filter in. Speaking of filters, I have a question, in, and we've got the Iris Nebula up here. I think that's a reflection nebula in Cephas, though. Uh, this, this is on my list of, of things to take a look at. I can't remember if I've ever seen it before, and I've seen a lot of really great photos of this, but it occurs to me, do filters work with this live stacking? Like, do you, like, have you tried any filters? Do you need special filters? Do visual filters work, or have you experimented with this? Yet? I just have the box down. So when you buy one of these cameras, it's a bit, it's a bit strange. They, they, they sell you the camera, but the camera's chip are quite sensitive into the red and the infrared. So you need to then buy an infrared filter that screws onto the front just to block out that light. I, mean, oh, I don't okay. know why they don't come with them. But yeah, so I screw that in, which is a standard thing. And I use that for my planetary imaging as well. That just limits the field, the optical path to sort of visible light. So you're not getting that infrared in there. But yes, you can buy, similar as we talked about for the photographic side, the, um, sorry, for the visual side, uh, filters that just pass through the light of those, uh, those emission nebulae, because they only emit their light at certain specific wavelengths. So if you've got a filter that just passes the light of those through, you then dim the sky down to, to black or as near as black as you can get it. And that sort of improves the contrast, improves that signal to noise ratio. So all the light's still coming through from the nebula, but very little else is. So then you can see it against the background sky. So you've been doing some planetary imaging as well. Is this also with the live stacker? Is it, well, is it just similar. for deep sky? Sorry. or Okay, go ahead. So, well, it's the same camera. So when we're looking at these big, dim, fuzzy things like galaxies or nebulas or things like that, what you're trying to do, of course, because they're large and dim, you have to take a long exposure of the light to build up on the chip. Therefore, you, you need a 10 or 20, 30 second exposure. And you need a number of these stacked together to get to get a nice image. By contrast, when you're looking at the planets, they're very small, but very bright. And because they're small and they've got lots and lots of fine details, you know, looking at Jupiter there, the great red spot just rotating into view. The big problem we've got here is the atmosphere. It's so turbulent, it breaks all that, you know, what we call seeing. So you have nights of good seeing where the air is relatively still and you can see lots of fine detail. And more often than not, and certainly where we are in southern England, you get nights of really bad seeing where the atmosphere is chucking everything around. It's all distorted. So what you do is you then use a high speed camera. So maybe capturing 100 frames a second, something like that, you know, 50, 100 you know, frames a second. And you then use free software that sorts through those hundreds of frames, thousands of frames, tens of thousands of frames, and says, right, I'm going to reject 90% of them. I'm going to only keep the sharpest of the sharp frames. And then you keep those sharp frames, you stack them all together, and you can then process them and bring out all those hidden details. And I say it's, I can remember, you say, when I was getting into astronomy, so what was this would have been, uh, 
And she's like, yes, I'm just trying to think. Early 2000s, we had a talk at Astronomy Club, and this chap came along and said, webcams are the future of astronomy cameras. So you remember when webcams were becoming popular mm-hmm. and people were mm-hmm. starting to have video conference calls, a bit like what we're doing now from our, you know, from England out to Canada. So, and they, this is what people were doing. They were using conventional webcams that cost tens, tens of dollars to then take loads of pictures, sort through the blurry frames and stack them two together. So really you're going to the diffraction limit of your telescope. So you've rejected all the ones that are blurred by the atmosphere. You're now just limited by the physical aperture of your telescope. So if you scroll down there to that picture of Jupiter, bear in mind Jupiter's not, you know, where here we are up at 51 degrees north, you know, we're not in the tropics, the planets, the ecliptic doesn't go overhead. And yet on with that 11-inch scope, you can resolve surface features on Ganymede. Mm, so there's actual, wow. you know... You know, surface markings on there. You know, you can you can peer inside, see stuff inside the great red spot. Now, this was a morning of very good seeing. So, just as we are affected visually, as we are with the imagery side, you know, you have lots of good seeing and bad things. So, if the scene's really bad, it doesn't matter how good your how many frames you capture; they're all distorted by the atmosphere. But on the nights when the scene's good, or the mornings in this case when the seeing is good, you know, you ten percent of your frames are sharp. You know, for that. Mm-hmm. fraction of a hundredth of a second mm-hmm. you know the atmosphere was dead still uh, and then again the software rejects the blurry ones stacks them together you then sharpen them and you say you're now resolving features inside the storm cloud so when i look through the eyepiece at you know jupiter you can see the great red spot you can see the, the surface markings you, know, you can see the galilean moons but then when you run it through the camera and do the sharpening that's when you really bring out all this hidden detail mm-hmm mm-hmm uh, a quick question. I, I noticed on the planetary images they're they're capturing to me what it, it looks like pretty good realistic color tones. I'm just wondering uh, on the deep sky objects, do you do you get color as well or not so much color? Yeah, it depends if you've got a color camera or a black and white color. Uh, black, excuse me. So planetary use color. That's how I use a color camera. So I've mm-hmm. got a. Where did I buy mine? About seven or eight years ago, I think I bought this camera that I use for the planetary. And that's got a very, it's got a smaller chip, smaller chip, so it is cheaper because it's a smaller chip. And that's what they call a two two four ASI two two four camera. Uh, but on the on the deep sky side, I'm using a black and white camera. Uh, so you can use either. You can choose. Okay. So what I bought my camera that I've been using the deep sky is one I've been using for my solar imaging. Mm-hmm. Uh, on my Refreshing Views YouTube channel, there's a, um, I've put a few time lapses in. So uh, like most of us or like a lot of us after the, the lockdown and the restrictions came to an end, I got, you know, I, I work from home now. I sit in my warm room in my, in my shed. That's my home office. And I'm dialing into work calls or I'm writing my documentation, writing up my, my stuff for work. And particularly in the middle of the summer when the sun's shining, I've got my solar camera riding on the mount. And I will have that sitting on, on my side and uh, I'll be on a Zoom call or whatever that is. And I'll be, you know, capturing a time lapse. I'll be capturing a soda flare as it erupts for, you know, maybe an hour or something as something blasts off from the surface. But of course, the, looking through the hydrogen alpha telescope, it comes through as red light. So if you use a color camera, it's only your red pixels that are working. So you therefore use a mono camera for the sun because otherwise you're only using a third of your pixels. Your green pixels and your blue pixels aren't doing anything. Mm-hmm. So therefore, I call it a black and white color, black and white camera for my solar imagery, and then also used it for the deep sky as well. Mm. Very cool. Yeah, maybe mm-hmm. I should tell Mrs. Refreshing Views I need another color camera as well. Obviously. <laughs> Good luck, sir. <laughs> yeah, because she calls it this. It's just one more thing. It's just one more thing, isn't it? If only I bought a, you know, observatory, and then bar, but then I need this. So when I was getting into planetary imaging, because of all the things I like to look at, well, I love looking at all of it, but I really like looking at the planets because you look at Jupiter for an hour. And it's changed completely, you know, as the mm-hmm. moons come and go and the storm features come and go. Mars comes and goes, desert features, storm clouds, you know, dust storms, all that. So I love the fact, you know, that that picture of, you know, the Iris Nebula or M110, you know, if we came back next year, I reckon it's pretty much going to look the same. Mm-hmm. Um, but as you look at Jupiter or you look at Mars, you know, they're always changing, you know, night to night, season to season, year to year. Yeah. 
so I love looking at this stuff. So I said, right, we have this talk from this guy at the club and you know, we're going to buy this webcam. He said, oh, brilliant. Yeah, go and buy the webcam. And they go, ah, oh, I just found out I need to buy an infrared filter just to, so it's just looking in the optical part. I said, okay, you know, they can buy one of these. Oh, but now I need a barlow because, of course, the planets are small, so you need a barlow to make it. And then, <laughs> and then I needed a – well, now it's really hard to find the planets because the field of view is so small. Uh, so I need to buy one of those little flip mirror things, you know, so I can flip between eyepiece and camera. And, you know, then I'm touching the focusing knob, and then, you know, that makes the telescope jitter all over the place so I can never – so if I need, I need to buy a motorized cam, you know, motor – bought one of those uh, motorized focuses to put that on as well. She says, hang on, you went and bought a camera – you know, four months ago to go and do this. And now you've bought a fat camera, a filter, a barlow, a flip mirror, and a motorized face. <laughs> well, she really pays attention, though. That's... Yeah. <laughs> oh, it all goes on the list. My big fear, they always joke about this, isn't it, is that if anything happened to me and I'm no longer here, is that my wife will sell my gear for what I told her it cost. <laughs> <laughs> The vultures will be circling. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, so yeah, yeah. So one of the things I really want to do. So Jupiter's. I think it must be. We're on the same latitude, don't we? Something at fifty degrees yeah. north. Of, yeah. So what I want to do when Jupiter gets a bit high, sometime in the next few years, you know, when it's further up into the sort of the winter sky, is to start observing Jupiter from you know after dark in the winter. So maybe you know seven o'clock, nineteen hundred local time. Being able to observe a whole rotation, a whole 10 hours of Jupiter as it crosses the sky. Right. To be able to see, you know, one whole de- Jupiter day. So, you know, the great red spots in the middle, it would disappear on the limb, go all the way around the far side and reappear on the same side. You'd actually capture a whole rotation in one night. Yeah. It'd be rare to get 10 hours of clear sky like that. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And what I worry about is that would happen midweek when we're really busy at work and, uh, you know, the kids <laughs> would be playing up and <laughs> I'll say, hang on, I've got to go outside and observe Jupiter for, and then try and go to work the next day. So what observing uh, plans do you have for this uh, autumn, Mark? What are you up to? Well, I've got to start my Herschel 400 again with my new live stacking mm. approach. So oh, okay. I'm really enjoying that. So I've looked at the sort of galaxies in, uh, in Pegasus the other night. And um, so galaxies, don't know, in the eyepiece, they always look like dim smudges, don't they? And uh, I can't remember, I'd have to look it up, but there is one in the one of the galaxies in and uh, in, in Pegasus that is a proper barred spiral, NGC 7814, I think it is. And that's an absolute beautiful galaxy. And then I went to the next galaxy, and it was a ring galaxy. I'll have to get my notes. I don't know where my notes are. But yeah, the, the other one was a ring galaxy. So normally you have galaxies that are like, spy, you know, got the spiral arms and, and the world, you know, like the whirlpool. Um, but this one actually has a ring around the outer, around the outer edge. And it's a merger of lenticular galaxies. So while this image is building on the screen, uh, I'm, I'm busy looking at the, you know, looking up on Wikipedia or looking up in Sky Safari, what the, what the actual thing is. So you actually get to see these sort of things firsthand. So, can yeah, you get, so are you able to get your like your uh, your Herschel certificate by using uh, the camera that way, or you're just looking to observe them? I, I just observe because I enjoy it, Chris. I'm not interested in collecting badges to what do they say get accolades from strangers? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so we don't do that in the UK. I really admire that. When I was at the Winter Star Party in in February, they had a talk from the lady who ran or was the part local leader for the Astronomical League. And uh, she was giving a talk about, you know, the, you can observe the moon, carbon stars, planets, deep sky, the sun, whatever it is you want to observe, you know, and you have this program and you, you collect these these sort of observing certificates by following this program. And I thought that's a brilliant idea, because if you're trying to, you know, whatever it is, variable stars, double stars, the moon, whatever it is you want to observe, you know, having that program to you know, take you through that. I thought, what a brilliant idea! Different levels, different, you know, for you know whether you've got binoculars or a telescope. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they, we, for the BAA, it's one of the things I, I think I should write into them and say, you know, is how about having these observing programs? You know, to start off as a beginner, how how do you do that? Uh, you know, so I think in the UK we're very much becoming. And I don't know if that's just because it's easier to post images, but it's very much becoming an imagery uh, based. Uh, hobby, you mm-hmm. know, where people, you know, 
the idea, but then it's hard, you know, if you've mentioned a variable star, you know, it's very hard to then put that on social media, whereas if you've taken a picture of a, you know, of a beautiful galaxy, for example, then that's easy to post up. So yeah. I don't know what your thoughts are on that as well. Is, is, is it the same in Canada that they yeah, always we- moving towards more the imagery side? Yeah, when I was at the star party last month, for sure, like it was the a lot of the stuff on the field was imaging based. But there, there's a few of us around the periphery that are still looking at stuff with our eyeballs. Yeah, how quaint! Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> are you doing any sketching still? Or yeah, still do. Getting... So I, I like the way Lawrence does because Lawrence does this. He he gets his kit up and running, and he does the live stacking, and then he'll get his binoculars out. Nice. And he, you know, chat, chats this way. So that's what I want to do is do that. And that gives you a much more intimate experience of being able to see, you know, these things. You've actually physically seen it with your eyes. You haven't, you know, so you used to let the camera do the work. But yeah, the thing. But uh, we've got uh, two events coming up this season, haven't we, that I really want to see. So, well, one I won't see, which is the, you guys get the serial clips next month on the 14th of October. You guys got any plans to go and see that? I'm not traveling to uh, to see that one. I, where is that one visible from? I'm not even sure the line for that. I think yeah. it crosses the continental United States, Central yeah. America, and South America. So the partial phases mm-hmm. are certainly visible, you know, from from your part of the world as well. Yeah, I think we get like seventy percent of the eclipse here for the annual. On on October, what is it? October eighth. Yeah, I had fourteenth in my next, but oh, maybe it is the maybe it is. Let's get you dialed in, Shane, so you know what day and how much to see of it. <laughs> so yeah, so you guys get to see well in this case a partial uh, solar eclipse, and then two weeks later, and I didn't I didn't realize this, but they always come in pairs. If there's a solar eclipse, it's then followed by a lunar eclipse. Lunar, yeah. We don't get that here, though. Yeah. I don't think we see any of it. Yeah, so that's uh, that was sort of pretty much when I looked it up. It was sort of Australia, Africa, Asia, Europe get to see the lunar eclipse, but it's only a partial lunar eclipse. It's just gets the you know sort of a bite taken out of it round about the southern limb. The moon's only just clipping the Earth's shadow, but yeah, that's pretty cool to go and see it. Go and go mm-hmm. see that. See, yeah, see the Earth. You know, see the Earth's shadow being cast onto the moon. We had one a few years ago. When was that? About 2015, 2016. And uh, amazingly, we had clear skies at the same time as a lunar eclipse. Because normally when there's something in the sky, as you can imagine, the clouds come in. And then the moment it's finished, the clouds then clear. And so we had the, you know, the lunar eclipse. And it was, you know, we watched the, you know, the shadow moving across the moon. And, you know, then the moon went deep red. And it was really weird because you have... This bright, you know, the full moon's in the sky. It's this sort of orangey-red colour, but all the stars are out and the Milky Way. So it was really weird looking at this bright moon, but being able to see the Milky Way and all the stars and stuff as well. Normally when there's a full moon, you can't see anything. So a lunar eclipse is pretty cool, but a solar eclipse must be even better. I'm really looking forward to those in 2026 is when Europe next gets its solar eclipse. Okay. So that's visible from Spain. So we've, we're already sort of planning our family holiday. Not that you can book accommodation, you know, three or four years in advance, but yeah, we're definitely going to go down to down to Spain and, and see the solar eclipse from there. Mm, wonderful, yeah. Um, I'm I'm tempted for uh, well to travel for the 2024 solar eclipse that's coming our way here. Um, so looking into some loose plans for that right now. You go down to the down to the deserts, the American deserts, to go and go and see that. Yeah, Texas would be the best chance for, you know, good weather for the event. Um, and then it goes all the way up through, uh, I think, Montreal here in Canada and then over to the oh, East right. Coast. I think uh, like maybe oh, the edge of like, Newfoundland can um, catch it. But when you're in kind of that part of Canada in April, it's more than likely going to be cloudy. So, right. so you, you travel then to go and get the better chance of clear skies? Uh, potentially. We we saw the 2017 eclipse and uh, we're blown away by that. But um, this probably would be a dual purpose trip, a little vacation with an eclipse. So have to balance uh, all of those factors. And I don't know, mm. we we haven't made any solid plans yet. Yeah. Yeah. So this one's an annular eclipse, isn't it? It's uh, the one in next month. So yes. 
just a reminder, obviously, then that there's still a little bit of that sun. The, the, the moon doesn't quite cover the disc, so do be careful. You know, you've still got that exposed solar surface. So, you know, if you look at it through binoculars or telescopes, that will affect your eyesight. So use the appropriate solar filters, put the mylar glasses on, or use a proper solar telescope. That's the, even that little portion of the sun that's still visible, still enough to damage your eyesight. Mm-hmm. Yeah, great point. So tell us about uh, the BAA event coming up at, at New Scientist, you know, early on. Yeah, so do you know the New Scientist magazine? The, the yeah, I've seen it, magazine? yeah. Yeah, so they sponsor an event in London called uh, New Scientist Live, and they have all kinds of stands and talks, and, you know, it's everything to do with farming, environments, space sciences. They always have an astronaut or two. And the British Astronomical Association, the BAA, they have a stand there to try and encourage new members and try and encourage people to uh, to have a look. And if I lean over here, I've got this picture of Jupiter. So this is a 3D printed Jupiter. And not that you can really see it on the, coming through on the camera. So I printed one of these for the BAA and they painted it. So they painted the belts and the zones. So it's reds and browns and all that sort of thing. And we okay. take a small telescope. We take a little four and a half inch uh, Newtonian to us, right to the centre of London. It's in this big exhibit hall. And we then have to find the furthest point away from the stand, right the way on the other side of the conference hall, somewhere nice and high. And we put our Jupiter on okay. something. And then we say to people, I pass them, hey, do you want to see Jupiter? And they go, what? We're inside. It's the middle of the day. And we go, no, no, have a look at the telescope. And then we get kids to either sketch it or take a picture with their smartphone uh, through the eyepiece. And I think last time we went, we had over a thousand people look through a telescope indoors in the daytime and photograph the sort of 3d globe of jupiter on the far side oh yeah and that was in the farm it said jupiter we put we went to the farming section so there was a you know modern farming and feeding the world and you know all that sort of thing and they had this massive 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 and you're like this being from saskatchewan a massive combine harvester uh, and uh, th- so we got permission to climb right to the top of this thing, <laughs> put this little six-inch diameter bottle of Jupiter on top of it, and then we could see it all the way across the Mars zone in the space in the space <laughs> zone uh, into the farming zone. And yeah, people would walk past and you say, "Hey, come and have a look through the telescope." And uh, you know, I think the best comment we had was, "So they would look through the eyepiece and we'd see Jupiter, and they'd take a picture with their smartphone, and then we'd say." Uh, you know, so they say, well, where is it? We'd point to it over there. Well, first of all, we had to show them it wasn't a little model inside the eyepiece. And we said, no, no, look, it's all the way over there on the other side of the room. And they go, wow, that's a really long way away. And we say, yes, that's why you have to use a telescope. Mm. Pretty cool. <laughs> Very cool. Very cool. All right, we're getting to uh, time, folks. Uh, do you have anything uh, to add to, to this show, Mark? Maybe we can talk about binos on a, on a future episode. Yeah, well, I, I could talk on for another hour. So my <laughs> daughters go to uh, the local secondary school and uh, they started. So in the UK, uh, we do two sets of exams at school. So you do what's called your GCSE, your General Certificate of Secondary Education. You do that when you're about 16. And the, there is now, what well, has been for a few years now, an astronomy GCSE. So you can study GCSE while you're at secondary school. Uh, in your teenage years and so uh the local school has started doing this and uh, they asked for people to sponsor the gcse prize you know for prize giving for for speech day at the school so my youtube channel refreshing views that brings in you know about 50p a month or something like that is actually (laughs) sponsored uh the prize which i think is quite good actually because cool um you know that some you know, a group, a small group of students are doing that, but they get a prize for the best project. And that means they, they get some money. Yeah, they have to go and buy a book with that. And, you know, that sort of, I think that's all a good thing, isn't it? Encouraging kids into science and, you know, astronomy in particular. I think that's got to be a good thing. So there is now a refreshing views GCSE astronomy prize at the Southwalks Grammar School. Cool. Yeah, that's great. Shane, do you have anything to add to this episode? Um, Mark, if anybody's interested in, you know, seeing visually what your camera, your new camera setup can do. Do you have some videos posted to your YouTube channel uh, showing the results? Uh, I've done one live okay. stacking. So my problem at the moment is is just time. And I'm sure yeah. I'm preaching to the choir here. You know, you've got to come out here at 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock, one o'clock in the morning and try and record yourself and then spend the next day when you're tired and you know, you're supposed to be at work and editing it all down. So I've done one video of live stacking and we did a supernova tour. So we looked at mm-hmm. the Crescent Nebula, 
which is a wolf ray star that's about to go supernova. Just up Gamma Cygni, yeah. Yeah, that's right, yes. Uh, so right in the middle of, of Cygnus. We then looked at Messier 101, which has that supernova in that's currently ongoing. So that was a star that is a supernova. And then we had a look at the Veil Nebula, which is a star that 10,000 years ago did go supernova. And so we followed a star, you know, followed that journey of a supermassive star about to go supernova, a star that is going supernova in a distant galaxy, and then, uh, you know, a supernova remnant in our own galaxy. And that's what I love about amateur astronomy, you know, is I sit here, and I've seen it before, I sit here in my shed in southern England, you know, just a stone's throw from Stonehenge, and yet above us, you know, we've got these stars going supernova, about to go supernova, or have gone supernova. And what I want to do on my next one is actually do a deep dive into into Andromeda Galaxy. So start off with what you can see in binoculars, you know, the satellite galaxy, you get a telescope, you know, you can see the spiral arms, and then so you put the camera on, and then you can actually see stars inside the star cloud, you know, these dark features inside Messier 101. And, you know, I think back to, well, I'm trying to think back when it was, 2015, 2016, I remember, you know, out there sketching the Andromeda Galaxy with my binoculars, and here we are a few years later, uh, you know, putting the camera on it and now being able to see all these wonderful details. So, And that's what I enjoy about it, you know, being able to see this sort of stuff firsthand. I love to say we're looking at it live, but it is about, you know, 10 million years. <laughs> the, the distances to these galaxies can be about 10 million light years. So we say it's live, but it's not really live. It's, it's as yeah. live as the camera can get it. Yeah, yeah. Well, thanks, Mark. I really enjoyed this conversation. This was great. Yep. Thanks for joining us today, Mark. And dear listeners, please subscribe and do us a favor and share the show with other stargazers you know. You can always send us your ideas, observations, and questions to actualastronomy at gmail.com. Thank you, everyone, for listening, and we hope you enjoyed the show. If you are interested in more information, would like to contact us, or if you would like to support the podcast, check out our website, actualastronomy.com. <laughs>